to tell you something. My life is changing and it's not great. Somewhere I live, of the freedom of speech. Well, the next one. It still looks like a war zone here. It looks like ground zero. Well, the next round hit my husband, hit my soldier. Does he have a crush on me? No. I just believe I'll die for my cross. Hearing is seeing. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary. To me, New Orleans always represented one of the most authentic places that I'd ever been. Who's got better music and food than us? Nobody. We're the culture that go all year round. We're the culture that don't stop. There is no place in America quite like New Orleans. But two years ago, the Katrina disaster flooded 80% of the city. Is the music over in the birthplace of jazz? We have lost a lot of musicians. I'd love to come back to live, but I can't be a fool about it. There is nothing the government is doing to encourage the recovery. You do it yourself. You find a way. Coming up, Roots to Recovery from American Radio Works. First, this news. It is a rainy day in Jackson Square here in the heart of the French Quarter, New Orleans, Louisiana. And Jackson Square is famous for many things, the beautiful cathedral and where the Louisiana Purchase was signed that brought one-third of the United States into the Union uh, from France to America. From American Public Media, this is Roots to Recovery, an American Radio Works documentary. I'm Stephen Smith. And I'm Nick Spitzer from American Roots, a music and cultural program produced here in New Orleans. Behind us is Andrew Jackson astride his horse. And this is the square where President Bush came after Hurricane Katrina to speak to the nation and to pledge in front of an empty square but a lit-up cathedral that the government would do what it takes to rebuild New Orleans. And here we are at the second anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. And what it appears to be is that the people of New Orleans who've come back are the ones who are doing whatever it takes to rebuild their city. Over the next hour, Nick Spitzer and I are going to be traveling the streets and the neighborhoods of New Orleans to find out on the second anniversary of Hurricane Katrina how the culture of this city is surviving. And as we stand on Jackson Square, I have to say, I love the beignets at Café du Monde. I love the beautiful buildings. Bourbon Street can be fun at times. It's a little bit raucous. But we're going to go deep into the neighborhoods where the people that cook the food, make the music, and in some cases have built and rebuilt this city are living and trying to survive. This is the music of New Orleans pianist and singer Henry Butler, an old friend of Nick's. I should mention, Nick, that you have been living in Louisiana off and on since the 1970s, and you know people like Henry Butler, and you know the city's culture through your work as an anthropologist, as a writer, and as Louisiana's state folklorist for a time. And you told me that Henry Butler is in the tradition of the piano professor. Yeah, that means that Henry plays a wide range of styles, from classical to jazz and blues, and then mixes them together to make it all his own. It comes out Butler every time. He's also a kind of artistic explorer. His expeditions across the musical map are launched from the port of New Orleans. And he has been blind since early childhood, grew up hearing blues and gospel in the neighborhood, and then went to Southern University in Baton Rouge for formal training. We drove Henry Butler to his home in the city's Gentilly neighborhood. He's been back a couple of times since the storm. And two years after Katrina, his neighborhood is still a patchwork landscape of abandonment, rebuilt houses, and FEMA trailers. Standing on the lawn, Butler nudged the turf with his shoe. Looks like some of the grass has started growing a bit. Yeah. Last time I was here, it was a little barren, mostly weeds. Butler's neighborhood was devastated by breaks in a nearby levee. His house got flooded about shoulder high, and the water sat there for weeks. Now the place is gutted, just flooring and studs. Nick leads Butler inside. Today, up and in, boxes left and right, but you clear down the center. All right. For me, it's harder to distinguish what room was what, because all the walls are gone, and uh, you can see the piano over there. It's just, uh, it's just a, a frame, pretty much. Oh, good Lord. And uh, the keys sitting there, the black keys are just kind of, you can pick them up. I just picked up a black key. Yeah, with your hand. And For those who are listening to this, I'm actually uh, pressing down the keys 
And this is what you hear. Oh. And there we go. There we go. Henry Butler was out of town on August 29, 2005, the day Hurricane Katrina hit, the day the levees broke. And like many New Orleans residents, he couldn't get home for months. He lost master tape recordings in the flood, a mountain of Braille magazines and books, and other things that were precious to his creative work. When I saw this piano in December of 2005, it just broke my heart. After spending 20, 21, 22 years with this piano and making it my piano, it's, it's like my baby, you know? It's like the thing that... It's like the thing that got me to where I am. It's a beautiful thing. Henry Butler applied for money to rebuild his house from Louisiana's storm recovery program called The Road Home, but he got turned down. And the insurance money he got isn't enough to rebuild, so this celebrated New Orleans musician now lives in Denver. A lot of New Orleans people haven't come back or really can't come back. The estimates vary, but the city's population is about 60% of the pre-storm level. Tourism is recovering slowly, and residents really are still struggling. Only a fraction of the people who applied for government rebuilding assistance have gotten paid. Many schools and hospitals, especially those serving poor neighborhoods, are still closed. Henry says he can't move back to this New Orleans. It's still too much in disarray for him. You've got a lot of well-meaning people, and they're doing a lot of good things, a lot of little projects here and there. It's like a symphony without a conductor, you know, just moving at a snail's pace. I'd love to come back to live, but I can't be a fool about it, you know? I mean, I, I have to be wise about what I do with my life. Henry Butler is one of hundreds of New Orleans musicians who moved away and are reluctant or unable to get back home. People have just gone to the, to the far corners of the earth, it seems, or at least the far corners of the United States. That's veteran record producer Scott Billington. Other parts of the country just don't realize how little New Orleans has recovered and how much, how much needs to be done to bring back the people who are the heart and soul of that culture. Billington says more than many other cities, the culture of New Orleans, especially music, is created and sustained by local neighborhood folks. Cab drivers and maids and gardeners and levee workers um, who, to me, that, they were the foundation of New Orleans culture and New Orleans music. People say that, that the music just bubbled up from the sidewalks in some of these uh, relatively poor African-American communities, and, and perhaps it did, but unless these families come back, I think that that font, or whatever you would call it, of, of New Orleans music, it, it will run dry. I think it comes down to this. People make culture, and they've got to have some place to live. For some, it's so hard to find a place that they give up, and others are spending everything that they have to rebuild. Sorry about the stuff. On a stormy New Orleans afternoon, musician Charles Elam opened up his house in the city's ninth ward. Somebody broke in recently and stole his tools. Crime in the area is so bad Elam keeps the door padlocked and screwed shut, so it takes a key and a power drill to get in. Best I can do is slow him down for the next run, you know? The reason for the green rooms, I know you probably say, why is so much green? Uh, a friend of mine ran to a situation where a guy says, man, I got this green carpet and no one likes it, and I have to unload it. I give it away to whoever first person comes by to get it. Sax player Charles Elam is a well-established sideman, and he tours the world with his own band. Like so many other New Orleans musicians, he's piecing his life back together with scraps of the old and new. A little free carpeting here, some donated furniture there. His life savings and his own sweat. There's a two-man crew that came in and put the sheetrock in. I'm helping screw it and sheetrock and hold it. I'm helping him. And then when they leave, I paint. You know, I do all my own painting. I mean, my dad taught us all this stuff when I was a kid. So when people come in, they say, who did the woodwork? Me. 
Yeah, they're pretty surprised to see that art uh, do more than just play saxophone. Yeah. <laughs> Elam's quick and generous humor conceals tremendous loss. His wife, Idera, died three weeks after Katrina in Monroe, Louisiana. Elam and his wife and their two kids evacuated to Monroe just as Katrina hit. Elam says the stress of the storm caused Idera to have a heart attack. He's been almost lost without her, as a man and a musician. She kept the books, made sure he was on time to gigs, handled correspondence, and managed his wardrobe. My wife made sure I had suit ties, tie pins, cufflinks. I was the hardest working musician in town and the best dressed. So, and that was all because of her. Still, he keeps going. Two years after Katrina, Elam's house is partially repaired. He spent all the money from his wife's life insurance and then from the homeowner's policy to fix up the place. And he got turned down for a government grant and loan program to rebuild. And he says he's really not sure why. And like a lot of New Orleans musicians, he says his value as an artist is better recognized in Europe than in his homeland. I've had more help, more assistance from uh, promoters in, in Austria, Germany. What do I want? What do I need done? They want pictures. They want measurements. They want numbers. They want to get it done now. You know, that's what right. <laughs> Elim has also been helped out financially by a local coalition of nonprofit groups called Sweet Home New Orleans. It provides money and relocation assistance. We met Sweet Home director Jordan Hirsch in his teeny office where the AC was going full blast. Hirsch says that before Katrina, some 3,500 musicians lived in the city. More than half of our music community is not back in New Orleans in a stable situation. Thousands of households are still struggling every day with situations that are as urgent and severe as situations that families were facing, you know, right after the levees broke. Now, few people have ever gotten rich playing music in New Orleans, but it's also been a fairly cheap city to live in until Katrina. A one-bedroom place rented by a New Orleans musician before the storm might run 500 bucks. Post-Katrina, a one-bedroom place rented by a musician might run 850 And um, when your riverboat gig isn't there anymore, and when the club you used to play at is only open half the week, it's, it's tough. The mission at Sweet Home New Orleans is to help musicians find homes. The group is also trying to preserve one of the city's other distinctive cultural traditions, a spectacle that's been going on for 150 years. These are Mardi Gras Indians, people from the city's black and Afro-Creole neighborhoods, like here in the Treme. In New Orleans culture, the Indians have special significance for their Afro-Caribbean roots. I said Mardi Gras here Mardi Gras Indians dress head to toe in these elaborate beaded costumes, suits they call them, and they erupt in brightly colored feathers up to the crown. It's called masking Indian, though they don't actually wear a mask, they wear braided headpieces. The Indians spend months hand beating their regalia for Mardi Gras Day, which comes in late winter, just before the Christian season of Lent. There are dozens of the tribes that march through the neighborhoods engaging in mock battles with other Indians. In the old days, they actually might fight, but now they battle with costumes to see who's the prettiest. So on Mardi Gras morning, Nick led the way to a neighborhood bar that is headquarters for the Wild Magnolias. We got Who's dressing here today? Uh, this is the little chief of the Wild Magnolias. Little chief? Yeah, little chief. How old are you, little chief? Nine. Is this your first time masking Indian? Yes. All right. <laughs> the Wild Magnolias are one of the best known of the Mardi Gras Indian tribes. Their big chief is singer Bo Dallas, who is masking today in spite of a grave illness he's had recently. Bo's son, Gerard Dallas, leads the tribe, wearing a massive suit of white feathers and beaded Indian scenes. The thing weighs well over 50 pounds. Who, who did the sewing on this one? Me? <laughs> well, tell me tell me what you got. Make make a word picture. Well, it's just Indians with spirits. Like, this Indian's riding in his horse. And he have a, a spirit watching him while he's hunting. And this one's hunting. And there's just a whole scene where, you know, you got TP on this side. And you got buffaloes on that side. So, 
That's just basically it. You know, my, my suit basically about spirits and stuff like that. It's, it's a historical. It's a historical thing. You know, it's it's a melting of the of the African and the Native Americans traditions, because when we were enslaved, you know, and we tried to escape, they were the ones that took us in, you know, and even some Africans even intermarried into some tribes, you know. So it's it's a kinship. I gotta get that apron up off of the ground. Can the Indians help the hood recover after Katrina? Oh yeah, well, it, it brings the pride and, and the spirit back to the hood. Everything's done by hand, you know, and, it, and it's a lot of pride. If it wasn't for one man, y'all, I wouldn't be here today. The neighborhood is actually very empty compared to what one would normally expect. Mardi Gras is a temporary repopulator. It reminds people they can come back to camp out in their house or maybe they're repairing their house. And uh, for them that are back and have the power hooked up and the gas hooked up and maybe they got the mold out, you know, they're just experiencing something that the neighborhood has always had before Katrina. What we ought to be hearing here is some call and response between the big chief and some of his seconds and little chiefs and just feathers in all directions, <laughs> beads in all directions. When the parading was all through, we caught up with one of the Mardi Gras Indians on the front porch of his rented house. Uh, my name is Gerald French, and I am the gang flag for the Wild Magnolias. I'm the one that conveys, conveys the signals from the big chief. Normally the flag boy, as he's called, would be dressed in his own costume, but on the second Mardi Gras after Katrina, Gerald French didn't have a feather on him. The Indian suit he'd been working on got destroyed in the flood. Everything that we had, we lost. I mean, everything. We got wiped clean. It was so bad when we went back to our house, we didn't recognize it. As we talked, French was sewing beads in a magnolia pattern on a canvas patch. So I'm actually working on a suit for myself, for Jazz Fest. And uh, I've come up with a kind of weird color scheme. I'm trying to see if I can pull it off. It's going to be charcoal gray and fuchsia, which is like a hot pink. The feathers and beads and other materials for a well-made Indian costume can run thousands of dollars. The hardcore traditionalists make a new costume every year. Gerald French says that before Katrina, masking Indian was a priority. Now, that's harder. Mostly because of Katrina. A lot of gangs were, you know, kind of short this year. You know, a lot of guys have moved away. Uh, They've started new lives, you know, and it's kind of hard for them to get back. You know, and then also the guys that are here, you know, right now, you know, financially, you know, times are just tough. You know, the money that they would use to make a costume, they have to, you know, redo the roof, put new floors down, you know, bathroom. I mean, you know, you got to survive. Gerald French and family are surviving in a small rented house in mid-city New Orleans. Rents have gone up 30% since the disaster because the flooding was especially severe in low-lying areas that were disproportionately poor and black. Preserving New Orleans culture means finding musicians and Mardi Gras Indians a place to live. It also means saving the architecture itself. Um, This is North Robertson Street in Treme, and when I bought my house four years ago, I was really the only other household on the street besides Miss Jessie, who lives to my left, who's been here for, I don't know, 40 or 60 years. In the Tremaine neighborhood, real estate agent Meg Lusteau and others are working to save the architecture of New Orleans. Many of the Creole cottages and shotgun-style houses in the Tremaine are more than 200 years old, and they're known for distinctive woodwork, detailed plaster moldings, and shuttered windows and doors. Meg Lusteau complains that after Katrina, preserving or even recovering historic buildings can be a lonely and frustrating job. There is nothing the government is doing to encourage the recovery. There is absolutely nothing. They're not managing it. They're not directing it. They're not assisting it. In fact, they're just in the way. And as a result, everything that you see right now is citizen-driven. And that's pathetic. Lusteau says the urban blight 
that spread across the Treme in the decades before Katrina really makes storm recovery all the harder, especially the vacant and decaying houses around her. And I have chased vagrants out. I've chased prostitutes out, um, drug dealers, gutter punks, uh, you name it. They've been in there in the alleys. There was a murder in the alley next door, um, which resulted in bullets flying into my house. I mean, it's, it is just screaming, you know, you can do anything you want right here because nobody cares. The fearsome violence in New Orleans hangs like a pall over the city's recovery efforts. Before Katrina, New Orleans was one of the bloodiest cities in the United States. There was a calm after the storm, but the shooting has resumed, and it's worse than before. Many people in the city's cultural community live in or near the danger zones and fear the violence will grow too great to overcome. You gotta blow that whistle! All right. Should we start the walking? Yeah, all right. All right, everyone, Helen loves jazz funerals. We're gonna celebrate her today. Nick Spitzer and I attended another of New Orleans' singular traditions, the jazz funeral. This one for a local filmmaker and community activist named Helen Hill. She died on an early January morning, shot to death in her home by an intruder. Hill's husband, a doctor who treated poor people, was shot three times but survived. Their toddler son was uninjured. Hill was 36 years old. The funeral parade starts its slow march through the city. At the front of the line, a brass band in white chauffeur caps and black jackets. Her passing occurred right around the same time that a young man locally who was in the arts, a musician, Daniel Shavers from the Hot 8 Brass, the drummer, also was killed. And, and he was killed in a car next to his 15-year-old stepson. So those murders within a couple of days of one another galvanized the city. And it was on that basis that uh, a 5,000-person march occurred uh, about 10 days afterwards to, to protest the current situation in the city, its policing, its sense of uh, how to keep crime from happening, what have you. We met Scott Aegis at the parade. He was there with his three-year-old son. Aegis is an official with the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. Like many younger professionals in New Orleans, Aegis and his wife can get jobs elsewhere if they decide the city is just too unstable. Sometimes we question our sanity. I mean, look, we go to the playground, we talk with all our friends as we're pushing the strings. I don't know, you're going to stay? I don't know, you're going to stay? Well, you know what? Where else could we go? Where do I want to go? There's no, I've been all over the world. There's no place I really pr would prefer to be, even though we're still here amid leftover flood damage that hasn't been cleaned up and we've got all this violence. Hang on, Ben. I know this sounds crazy, but, but we really do believe that there's a future here. This funeral procession rolls through troubled neighborhoods in New Orleans and the Hot 8 Brass Band picks up the pace. The jazz funeral is a mix of Christian and West African sensibilities. There is grieving for the departed. And then there's the celebration of life that is passed into a hereafter that is a better place than here on earth. In New Orleans, people of all colors and faiths can be celebrated with a jazz funeral. And part of the power of this ritual is in helping those left behind to find meaning in endurance and survival. Again, here's Scott Ages. In the middle of all this, we're able to express our identity as New Orleanians by, by holding on to our culture and our traditions at the same time. This is what we can use to move forward as a community. And right now, ourselves and our culture are pretty much all we've got. After a short break, Nick Spitzer and I will meet people across the city who are using tradition and culture to help move New Orleans beyond survival to recovery. This is Stephen Smith. You're listening to an American Radio Works documentary, Roots to Recovery, a collaboration with the public radio program American Roots, which is produced in New Orleans. To learn more about culture makers of New Orleans and to see photographs of the Mardi Gras Indians, visit our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. Roots to Recovery continues in just a moment from American Public Media. From American Radio Works, this is Roots to Recovery, 
a documentary marking the second anniversary of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. I'm Stephen Smith. And I'm Nick Spitzer from American Roots, a music and culture program produced here in New Orleans. The storm that hit the Gulf Coast on August 29, 2005, and the levee failures that flooded New Orleans added up to the largest disaster in American history. 80% of the city lay underwater. Some neighborhoods were inaccessible for months. More than 400,000 people evacuated, and many will never come back. To me, it is eerie. There's so much of New Orleans that's still empty. Everyday people from historic neighborhoods are still gone. And they're the ones that create the music and food, the rituals and celebrations that make New Orleans a special, soulful place in American society and really in world culture. Stress is huge here for many, but just the same, a lot of the folks are determined to stay and rebuild the place. One house, one music club, one restaurant at a time. The grilled trout with crab, crab meat on top, with a butter lemon sauce, grilled steak, grilled pork chop. My name is Wayne Baquet, and I am a restaurant owner. I had the distinction of owning 12 restaurants, though, and not all at one time, but in my 35 to 40 years of being in business. Uh, the newest one is the one I'm, we're sitting in right now called Lil Dizzy's Cafe. Wayne Baquet's place is on a street corner in the Treme neighborhood. During the Katrina disaster, Lil Dizzy's took some flood damage and got ransacked by looters. Baquet was in suburban Atlanta wading out the floodwaters, cooking for 16 relatives marooned in one house and losing his mind. You couldn't find the things that you wanted to cook with. You couldn't find the kidney beans, the red beans. You couldn't find pickle meat. We had to make our own hot sausage. We, we were missing so many things that we had to you know, improvise and make happen. I mean, after a couple of months, I was stir crazy trying to figure out how I was going to get back to New Orleans. And so he did. Lil Dizzy's was one of the first restaurants in the neighborhood to reopen after Katrina. It became an informal resettlement center, connecting displaced residents with familiar people and flavors. It was like a family reunion every day. People coming from Baton Rouge, coming from Atlanta, coming from Texas, coming from all over. And the first thing they wanted to do after they saw their property and cried a little bit was come to Lil Dizzy's and get some red beans and get some gumbo and get some hot sauce and get a pool boy sandwich and some fresh Louisiana shrimp. And every day we're meeting people and you say, hey, how you doing, man? And they'd say, I just got in. And I had to get some New Orleans Creole food. New Orleans and South Louisiana in general is a region famously focused on food. And one writer, Malcolm Abear, put it this way, Creoles and Cajuns not only want to know what you have eaten, but what you're planning to eat for the remainder of the day, as well as for tomorrow. Then they will tell you what they have eaten, will eat today, and what's on the menu for tomorrow. I'm going to tell you, that I think I'm responsible for bringing hundreds of people back. Hundreds of people back. You know, people coming back all the time say, look, man, I was in Baton Rouge, I was in Mississippi, and I had to come back. And they just miss music and food. Who's got better music and food than us? Nobody. Hey, no argument with that. You know, another thing that really sets New Orleans apart from many other American cities is that deep sense of family history that connects people to the place. Wayne Bakke's connections reach back through both food and music. Some relatives ran restaurants, others played music, including with big names like Sidney Bechet. The sense of family history and cultural continuity is a powerful, almost magnetic force for New Orleans people, even though the city is still so damaged and difficult. I think the challenge is to pass along both the historic sensibilities and new possibilities to younger people. And one place doing that is jazz camp. For the past 13 summers, the Louis Armstrong Jazz Camp has been teaching young musicians the art form in the city where it was created. Filling the classrooms at a local school has been harder since Katrina, but the determination to train a new generation of players is all the greater. Veteran trumpeter Clyde Kerr Jr. is navigating his class through a jazz standard, Take the A Train. Come on, come on, I need you, man. That swing, the 20s and the 30s, that was a different thing from hip-hop and all that that you hear today. 
You have to capture the time and the music. I wasn't born there, but I know about it. The jazz camp's artistic director and an instructor, 72-year-old master saxophonist Kid Jordan. He's a jazz modernist in a traditional music city. And Kid's played with a wide range of people, from Aretha Franklin and Stevie Wonder to Ornette Coleman and Cannonball Adderley. So it's kind of remarkable that a 10-year-old jazz camper gets to learn from such a renowned musician. But that's New Orleans. Master musicians like Jordan have been passing their ideas of creativity on to young apprentices for generations. And for years, they've been trying to get squirmy, distractible young players to buckle down. Come into class, the way they do it in class, and have the discipline to go home and say, I've got to practice. All of that's a part of the discipline. You seem to set the bar high for them right at the very beginning. Exactly. That's exactly what I do. And at the end of these two weeks, these three weeks, they're going to be playing things that maybe in some school systems it would take one or two years in order to do. But the fundamentals and everything, the way they put the horn in their mouth, the way they put the wind in the horn, the way they hold their fingers, it'll work if you get the fundamentals straight. The role that the camp is playing is immeasurable. Vocal instructor and noted jazz singer Jermaine Basil says the future of music in New Orleans depends on a new crop of young players. This has to keep going. We have lost a lot of musicians, and we have to keep replenishing that source. We start with kids at 10, and many of them stay with us through their teens until they're maybe 20 years old, you know. And you see the growth of those children. You see how they have a sense of going someplace. Silence. That's great. Great. For kids in New Orleans, performance has long been a way of getting out of struggling neighborhoods going to college and music school on scholarships, or by becoming a professional musician locally and nationally. But for the most part, jazz camp is about preserving an art form, not rescuing children. Across the city, poverty and post-storm dislocation are a constant assault on family stability. So some in the city's creative community are trying other ways to reach truly vulnerable children. At a summer arts camp in the city's 7th Ward, a group of kids is working on a rap. They're ages 8 to 14 years old, and the instructor is a local hip-hop artist called Voice. She's drilling the children on the fundamentals of hip-hop. Hip-hop is four things. That's why my name tag has four circles on it. We know one of those things is rapping. Rondeja, can you tell us what another one of those things is? Graffiti. Everybody know what graffiti is? Yeah. Everybody, if you don't, it's all right. Can you explain what graffiti is, just in case somebody doesn't know? Simple programs like a summer art camp in a renovated corner store take on sharpened significance after Katrina. The disaster scattered families to points across the American map. Parents often have to live in other cities to make money, leaving their children in the care of relatives and friends, or in some cases, no one in particular. Camp leader Michelle Levine hopes Arts Camp can teach the youngsters how to navigate hardship. So when they get upset, maybe instead of becoming physical with their friend or enemy, that they go in and they they rap about it. They write their poem down or they paint or they, you know, they create a different, you know, just a different release, I guess, for what they're feeling. And when they do that, they'll realize they control a whole lot more than they may understand. The cure is going to be rapping first, so everybody else is available. In the rap class, some of the young artists are shy in front of the microphone. The teacher, Voice, leans in to help Nakira practice her rap. My name is Kira and I'm from the N.O. And everybody know that I represent for show. I'm a fly young money maker, top cat, laid back, my sack is higher. I'm from the design, ninth ward all day, seventh ward, don't play, third ward, okay. Remember we like Holly Grove, because we're going to let it, we space it out. Holly Grove. Rap is a good way to, to promote literacy, you know. 
I've worked with kids and they haven't been confident in writing raps because they don't know how to write. They don't know how to read. But the more that they rap, the more that they're in, uh, they have access to words, the more that they're interested in storytelling. You know, this comes, this goes as far back as slavery. We started this with oral tradition. So what if you don't know how to read? You can tell a story, you know what I'm saying? And I want them to feel like it's okay for them to tell their story and they're showing me that they can do it. My name is Carol and I'm from the N.O. Everybody know that I represent for show. Sure. I'm a flyer, money makes a get lean at my sexy tire. I'm from the desire. Night world all day, seven world don't play, third world okay. How you go? The Summer Arts Camp was created by local groups and artists, including an internationally renowned visual artist whose studio is just a few blocks away. That's Bubba. Come here. It's on, y'all be on radio. <laughs> we met up with Willie Birch on the sidewalk as he was calling out to one of the young men hanging on the stoop across the street. Willie Birch is 65 years old, but he's got a lean frame and a smooth face, and he does not look his age. He's a New Orleans native. His paintings and papier-mâché works are collected by the big museums. Still, he's deeply involved in trying to help his own city recover. He's been a champion of summer art camp and someone who challenges his teenage neighbors. Birch says that with kids, the role of the artist is to be positively subversive. You constantly putting things in front of them that give that say there is another way that you can look at your situation. It's all not doom and gloom. There is hope within all of this. In his firm, friendly way, Birch commands the young fellow from across the street to explain how he fits into the neighborhood. So what are you doing to help make it a better place? What I'm doing? Yeah, sure. I'm cleaning up in front of my dog sometimes, and I help people take the trash out. That's some of the things I do. Okay. Once he's off the hook, the young man retreats back across the street and drifts away with his friends. Willie Birch explains that these seemingly small efforts can matter. Like, I come out here and once a month, I clean up the whole block. Now, what has been happening, we've been having a lot of whites come in and clean up. But what I found was that the kids weren't responding because they said, well, you know, they had us enslaved, you know, so therefore, therefore, you know, it's just payback, you know. But then when Mr. Willie come out here and clean in front of your house, I mean, people didn't know what to do. And so finally those kids crossed the street. They came out and they got the bag and then the mama came out and then the lady here came out. That makes a difference, see. There's a disarmingly simple formula to what Willie Birch is doing with art in his New Orleans neighborhood. Take something negative, make it positive. For example, take theft. He makes it into a way to distribute art and to tell about the city's history. It was called the Heroes Project. Where we took 10 prominent New Orleanians African-American. Instead of doing an art show, we made 30 posters of each one of these figures. We put them on every, we put 300 and some up on every post in the area. We put them on an, on eye level where kids could take them off. We staple them in. We did this Friday morning. By Monday morning, there were no posters and not one was on the ground. What does that do? That means that instead of putting uh, rap stars in your house, now he got a piece of art in his, in his house. He has something on his wall that's of high quality and also represents something that means something to them personally. See? The recovery work Willie Birch does in the Seventh Ward, the art camp, the kids across the street, the posters, all tap an historic chord of self-sufficiency in New Orleans' black and Afro-Creole life. If local people don't work together to plant the seeds of cultural recovery, who will? I've never been one to depend on government. My experience as African-American, you, you do it yourself, you know, like you find a way. I remember my sister uh, had applied for the road home money. And all the problems that she had, she finally said, you know, y'all just keep y'all the money and I'll just do what I got to do. Well, she's rebuilding the house herself, you know. I mean, so, so there is something about survival. Uh, within the African-American experience in particular, that if you can endure slavery, then this ain't nothing. Of course, there are limits to what artists and musicians can do to help a city that's been hammered by the most destructive storm in American history. 
And two years on, people in New Orleans are still waiting for the massive rebuilding effort promised by Washington and City Hall. The mayor's office is promoting a $1.1 billion list of so-called trigger projects that are planned across New Orleans. Ed Blakely is a national expert on disaster recovery hired to direct the rebuilding. Blakely says constructing health clinics, community centers, and the like in the 17 target zones will ripple out into the surrounding neighborhoods in waves of private development. Uh, And it's an old city planning technique. You know, the railroad came in and they put up a general store and a courthouse and gave a block of land for a school and then the houses sprung up around it. What won't spring back are the New Orleans public housing projects. While many of those buildings are intact, they're boarded up. They house about 50 to 75,000 people. Uh, Now, we're not going to reconstruct that housing. We're actually going to do what San Francisco's done and Seattle's done and bring in mixed-use housing, scatter-site housing, so that poor people will not be congregated in a single place. Blakely says affordable and rental housing will take years to build. And that worries Sylvester Francis, who runs a small neighborhood museum dedicated to the culture of Mardi Gras Indians and the black marching societies known as social aid and pleasure clubs. All the culture people is black, and a good percentage of it lives in the projects. All the projects close, so that means the culture people is not here. At least a third of the people who lived in New Orleans before the storm still have not moved back. Sylvester Francis says the members of social aid and pleasure clubs and Mardi Gras Indian gangs who live out of town continue to make the trek back to New Orleans, but for how long? Yeah, if you know your club is going to parade on July the 4th, you're coming down. First of all, you ain't got nowhere else to live, okay? But you're going to come down and somebody's going to put you up for them little two, three days because you're going to parade Sunday. Oh, it's going to die out. You know, people going to get tired of everything. Okay, because the projects is closed. We need them projects. The people that were constructed before the storm, most of those people are back. Gerald French is the Mardi Gras Indian we met with the Wild Magnolias on Mardi Gras Day. He says it certainly won't be easy for the Indians to keep their traditions alive, but those who really want to will work their way back home. If you're not going to do something constructive, you're not going to do something positive, there's nothing here for you to do. The days are hanging on the corner and just hanging out and drinking beer and doing drugs and, you know, smoking this and doing that, those days are over. But that whole baloney about, you know, they don't want the black people back. You know, to me, that's just a a cop-out. I'm a black person. I'm back. Gerald French says he's not really worried that the post-Katrina exodus from New Orleans is going to cause damage to the city's indigenous culture. As he sees it, the Mardi Gras traditions, the jazz funerals, and the second line parades run so deep in the soul of New Orleans, when the band plays, the people have to come. Nick Spitzer and I made our way back to the Treme neighborhood where a second line parade was gearing up. The term second line is both a noun and a verb. You go to a second line to second line. A second line are the people that follow the first line, and usually the first line would be the people that put on the parade and are the community leaders, or at a funeral, they're the pallbearers and the solemn people who kind of walk with a sense of dignity and quietude. And the second line parades after and has fun and eats and drinks and pick up people as they go in the second line behind them. Up front in the first line are the Treme sidewalk steppers, led by the Rebirth Brass Band. The steppers dance joyously in matching gold silk shirts and trousers with black sashes across their chests and black homburgs on their heads. Some carry decorated fans and umbrellas. Tell me your name and who we got out here today. My name Mo, we second liner for the sidewalk steppers, baby. One and only. Tell me about your what you're wearing, your suit. We're wearing Italian silk with alligator suspenders and alligator shoes at the belly of the alligator. <laughs> Represent. The thing about a second line is that even though it's the very symbol of New Orleans, most tourists to the cities never see one. 
clubs that put them on mainly publicized the parades for their neighbors and friends across town. Ed Buckner is with the original Big Seven Social Aid and Pleasure Club, and he says that Second Lines are an overlooked cultural asset that can actually help speed the city's economic redevelopment. We're the culture that go all year round. We're the culture that don't stop. And, and, and when tourists come in and they happen to just buy, just happen to look up on walking to one of these parades and they find out that New Orleans has a whole different side, you know, and the true culture is on the other side. This here is the hidden part of the jewel of the city. What are you selling here, man? I'm selling um, New Orleans traditional vibes. What kind of flavors you got there? Sweet potato, homemade brownie, peach pie, strawberry pie. You sell a lot of pies on the second line? Do I? Believe it or not, they're going to be gone before we get to the halfway point. I'm going to take a couple off your hands, I think. What do they cost me? A dollar. Yeah? And I learned how to do this here in prison. Is that right? All right. I spent 20 years in Angola. No kidding. Right? And I learned how to do this trade so I can be a productive person for society. Hey, man, congratulations. Get this going. Most second lines take place off the conventional tourist map. They often pass through tougher sections of town, and a few parades have been marred by shootings. Still, Ed Buckner says New Orleans is missing an opportunity to connect tourists with second lines. I guarantee you after one or two tourists start patting their feet and start moving, you'll find that that whole tour bus of people, or whoever it is, they're going to start dancing and clapping and enjoying themselves. You can't help but enjoy this. Case closed. Case closed. You got me. <laughs> All right. Our last visit was to Dr. Michael White, a renowned clarinet player, jazz scholar, and teacher. After the levees broke, White's house sat for three weeks in eight feet of water. Now he hangs his elegant black suit in a FEMA trailer. Everyone hit by the floodwaters in New Orleans has been struggling with the loss of personal property. But at Michael White's house, the broken levees took a toll on jazz history. I had a lot of original music. I had a lot of complete band transcriptions that I used on shows of music of King Oliver, Jelly Roll Morton. I had a collection of clarinets, uh, vintage clarinets, from the 1890s through the early 30s, and I lost more than 50 of those. And then I had an E-flat clarinet that belonged to Paul Barnes, who played with uh, King Oliver and Jelly Roll Morton. He recorded with them in the late 20s. And the list keeps going. It takes Michael White a full five minutes just to give us the thumbnail catalog of jazz artifacts and scholarship that he lost in Katrina. Museums and archives have some of this kind of material, but Michael White used his collection of vintage instruments and musical arrangements like a stock of heirloom seeds. He sowed them throughout his teaching, composing, and music making, connecting modern players with the past, keeping the music rooted to tradition, and to the people. When you talk about traditional jazz, it captures the, the real history and the essence of New Orleans, uh, originating with the African-American community and moving beyond that and really into the world. We have one of the most valuable and important cultural heritage that constantly feeds us. I think our ancestral heritage is very important um, on every level of, of the city's existence today. Second Line Parades, Mardi Gras Indians, jazz, they are the heart of what makes New Orleans unlike any other place in the country, more of a Caribbean city in some ways than an American one. Two years after the floodwaters swept over New Orleans, recovery for many of its citizens remains agonizingly slow. Still, the culture of New Orleans endures, and those people that may have lost everything that they own, but they refuse to lose what they live for. And one of them is Michael White. Well, you know, I, I've, I've always believed that New Orleans jazz music was one of the great musics of the world. And uh, that has been reinforced for me post-Katrina because it was created at a time of social turbulence. And I think certainly post-Katrina in New Orleans, we have a lot of turbulence. Jazz evolved in New Orleans at the dawn of the 20th century, a time of social restriction and vicious racism. It was a time when African-Americans were uh, rapidly losing the few gains and promises made uh, after the Civil War. And as a result, uh, people were looking for freedom, 
and equality in society. But jazz was a musical way that a lot of people kind of expressed uh, those ideas of freedom and, and liberty and union and democracy. Uh, the music itself came to express the spirit of the people. Michael White spent a lot of years learning that spirit from older New Orleans musicians, from men born a century ago. And on their deathbeds, musicians would charge White to carry on the music of their city and invest it in the next generation. I feel actually very fortunate. Uh, with everything that I lost, the most valuable thing that I have is still with me. It's inside of me. It's the memory of those experiences with all of those great musicians and all that they had to, to transmit and really sort of give me, um, and the music itself, and that's still inside of me. Regularly, and not necessarily intentionally, but passed by the homes of Sidney Bechet and Jelly Roll Morton. And I mean, you, you feel that spirit, that presence is still there, very much so, very much alive. to Recovery was produced by Kate Ellis and Stephen Smith, along with Nick Spitzer, creator and host of the public radio music and culture program American Roots. The editor was Ben Shapiro. Technical help from Jason Rhine, Kaori Maiyama, and Craig Thorson. The Radio Works team included Mary Beth Kirshner, Ocean Kalin, Ellen Gettler, Laurie Stern, Catherine Lewis, and Courtney Stein. At American Public Media, Carrie Ness and Sarah Luckman. I'm Stephen Smith. And I'm Nick Spitzer. If you're on the web, visit AmericanRadioWorks.org. There you can find original videos, essays, and pictures describing the cultural recovery of New Orleans, as well as the audio and transcript of this program. You can also sign up for the RadioWorks podcast and newsletter. That's all at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Roots to Recovery was supported in part by a grant from U.S. programs of the Open Society Institute. Thanks also to the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival and Foundation and the Department of Planning and Urban Studies at the University of New Orleans. American Public Media.